Welcome to the Design Business Podcast. This is your host, Alexander Barnes-Ross, and in this, our very first episode, we'll be talking to Stephanie Miller, Director of Public Relations at international architecture firm, HOK. This episode is sponsored by Backman, who designed premium digital solutions for workplace furniture. With people starting to return to the office, they've recently launched a next generation office campaign, which looks at how to use tech to make the post-COVID transition just a little easier. Do check them out after you've listened to the show. And of course, thanks to them for supporting us and making this possible. HOK was founded in 1955 and is the largest US-based architecture and engineering firm with more than 1,600 staff based in over 20 offices worldwide. The firm is known for its innovation, promoting key considerations such as sustainability and designing for neurodiversity. In this episode, we'll hear Stephanie talk about the rise of design influencers, such as HOK's very own Kay Sargent, the changing landscape of PR in the world of architecture, and the value of personal relationships with the press. I hope you enjoy listening, and do be sure to let us know what you think with a comment on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Hello, Stephanie Hello. Miller. How are you? How is everything? Things are well. It's still morning for me, so the day hasn't really gone too far off the rails yet but who knows what could happen who knows exactly um should we start by asking you to tell me a bit about yourself your career um who you are what do you do sure so i am the director of pr for hok and we are a global architecture engineering design firm and i have been doing communications and pr in the, the kind of built environment world let's say for architects and designers for over 20 years, which is kind of stunning, um, but that's, that's it. And I found my way to it in a bit of a circuitous, unplanned way. I have a really solid liberal arts education. I have an undergraduate and a master's degree in comparative religion. Not necessarily what you'd think would lead you here, but when I do talk to younger people who are interested in, in coming into the world of marketing or PR communications, I really encourage them to not feel limited by studying kind of that world and putting those blinders on. I think study what you're passionate about, learn to think critically, to write well, to be creative. And all of that is so much more valuable. And you can learn on the job as I did, more of the nuts and bolts and the tactical parts of our business, but learn how to communicate clearly and passionately. And that will serve you much better, I think. Absolutely. I think there's so many people that I know in the industry, including myself, didn't didn't start in, in design. You know, my, I trained in, in fashion promotion mm-hmm. and worked in publishing for a little while and then ended up now working in, in architecture and design. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just one of those industries that captures you. And once you're there, mm-hmm. you, you know, you end up falling in love with it, which is amazing. What what has your journey looked like in terms of where were you before you were at HOK and how did you go from studying religion at university? <laughs> to where you are now? Well, I thought I was going to be an academic. I thought I was going to go on and get my PhD. And I realized kind of through my master's that that wasn't in fact my course. And I knew I had these very solid liberal arts skills, the things that I was just talking about. And I had also always had a personal interest in design, whether it was furniture and product or interiors. And I grew up in a family where my parents refinished furniture. I lived in a house that by your standards is not old. It was 200 years. 
but in the US, that's an old house. Um, so this sense from a young age that the, the things that surround us were intentionally created by people. And that may sound very simple, but the fact that there is a hand behind that piece of furniture, that building, and, and even the, the city. And so I thought, how can I bring those two interests together professionally and intentionally looked for a job in an architectural studio? And I found one that was more of an administrative role. And I was there for eight years and grew from that admin introduction to the person who was the communications director was ready to leave and focus on her family. And she brought me under her wing and really was a mentor and, and trained me and then kind of took off from there. And that was a firm that to, to me feel, felt very large. It was over 200 people at its largest. It had five offices, uh, two of them in Asia. And so I also began my career working across time zones, working internationally, working with architects and interiors and evolved from there. I've, I worked as a consultant, as a PR consultant. So I saw kind of the agency and the other side for a while. And I realized that that's not an area in which I wanted to focus. I felt that I could be more engaged and contribute more when I was really embedded in the fabric of an organization and could really get to know people and push, push them, but also grow myself. Uh, and I've worked at very small firms of 30 and 40 people, um, kind of, I call them charismatic, founder partner driven firms. Uh, one of them was called Allied Works, which has an office in Portland in the US and, and here in New York. And then from there, I was able to just through my connections and my network, I was offered a position with a practice called 3XN, which is in Copenhagen in Denmark. So I had the amazing experience of living and working in Europe for a number of years. Wow. Uh, and again, one of those slightly bigger, uh, at that point, maybe 100 people, but really boutique design-driven entity. And from there, made my way back to New York, uh, which has been my home base off and on for all of my adult life. And then came to HOK, which was kind of mind-blowing because I was coming to a firm that was you know, 16, 1700 people, 23 offices, beyond my imagination in terms of the scope of work that we do and the no kinds pressure. of projects. No <laughs> pressure at all. Ah. Um, <laughs> but it's the job is the job to a certain degree that there are issues of scale that are from a communications perspective important and challenging to address. But there is a red thread about what we do as, as PR people or as communication staff that sometimes you do have to scale up or scale down and change your processes a little bit, but it's, uh, it's an amazing way to grow and learn also to kind of jump into the deep end of a firm of this size. Did you, did you come to HOK as director or have you moved up within HOK? You came in at director level, right? Yes, they, I was brought in as director. Um, I did get promoted to a senior principal which was quite nice and unexpected recently so congratulations and <laughs> um, I was going to ask actually what your mm. what that impact has on your day-to-day -day. like what does a typical day look like for Stephanie Miller when you wake up to when you go to bed it's become much more typical in this time 
Um, I would say before the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of a typical day because I could be traveling a lot. I could be in different offices, dealing with lots of different things, but it's always varied. Here, a typical day involves coming from my bed to my chair, <laughs> but beyond that, there is not a lot of typical day because we do work across so many project types. And it was funny, I was on a kind of a catch-up call with one of my team members the other day, and we each had an extra minute. So I said, oh, okay, let me tell you about all of these different conversations I had, or different things that we've put in motion. And just to kind of bring him up to speed. And he laughed, he said, okay, we've been on the phone for 20 minutes, and you've probably talked about 12 different projects, market sectors, people, offices. He said, there are people who work their entire careers and don't have this much diversity in what they're talking <laughs> about or, or the projects on which they're working. And so I do think it's amazing. We could be talking about creating a video that's illustrating this really complex tool that we've designed for our healthcare consulting colleagues. We could be talking about, a, we are in fact making a video for a really great confidential client in Canada that's kind of turned to us almost as their production company. And so it's working with people on my comms team, the architecture team. We are developing pieces of narrative content that will live on the website. I'm working with Fast Company on a new contributed article. I'm onboarding a new leader for our justice practice. I'm directing our PR team in London. All of that happened yesterday. <laughs> Gosh, I feel, I think that the pure breadth of work that HOK do means that there's no way your job cannot be exciting, right? Every day is gonna be different. It is, and really challenging, most of it in a great way. I mean, I've had to learn about structural engineering, all of that, of course, with the caveat of I don't know anything, but I need to know enough to ask the right questions of my colleagues, to figure out how to leverage what they're telling me in a project to our different audiences. Uh, and so that constant intellectual stimulation is my all-time favorite thing about my job. I think that's something that that's a real testament to you and HOK as a whole is is how you guys do that in terms of if you think about neurodiversity as an <laughs> example that's something that HOK have really led the way in um, sort of promoting designing for neurodiversity what what was that journey like was it a conscious decision that was made by someone we need to do this or is it a national <laughs> evolution how did that how did that look for you that is absolutely part of a, a conscious conversation and effort that was had with our colleague Kay Sargent, who is one of uh, the HOK superpowers, I would say. She is this amazing resource. And she came to us, gosh, 2019, I want to say sometime early to mid-2019, and said, this is an issue that her clients are struggling with and that she's learned about. And so she is just this powerful force and is so engaged with all of these different threads of, of her client's interests. And she's one of our directors of workplace. And so you know, there are so many kinds of conversations that we have about the office because we all bring ourselves and our families and our responsibilities. I mean, so many per things that sound personal or seem personal kind of 
now, as we know over the last year, all are relevant to a, a kind of knowledge worker office workplace. And so Kay identified the topic of neurodiversity as one being that was hugely relevant. And she collaborated both with her clients and different people within HOK across our, our practice areas. They worked together to conduct research and then collaborated with our communications team to create multiple pieces of content. So we do sit down and have these very strategic conversations about who are our audiences, what are the goals, what do we need to say, how are we saying it, what are the vehicles, and we try not to get caught up in the vehicles and have that drive the bus. It's what do we need, what do we need to figure out, how are we saying it, to whom, and then it's all right, is it a report, is it a video? Is it a series of social media shares? We have all of those conversations. And now she has created multiple pieces of content and also gone out and educated people within HOK. So there's been this kind of ripple effect. And she and I were just talking about it yesterday, actually, that it's now kind of taken on a life of its own and moved beyond conversations in the workplace that we have had airport clients reach out to us and ask for a workshop and guidelines and training and to engage in this conversation. We're talking about it in the healthcare space. I think it's, it's directly applicable to every area. And so just from her continuing to beat the drum and be this great person raising the importance of the issue, it's now rippled out. And, but it's really important for her to be, I think, credited as the person who identified it and then is just this amazing force that Absolutely. has raised awareness. I think also it's, um, you can tell the impact has had not just within your organization, but within the wider sector. I mean, everyone that I speak to within architecture and design knows who Kay Sargent is. She's, you know, an influencer mm -hmm. of kinds within our sector. And I think it, it's real kind of testament again to, to you guys that, you're not just using PR to drive more sales and, and make more mm -hmm. money and get, get new business. You're using it actually to try and make the world a better place um, in a way. Hopefully. Is that something that's kind of a conscious part of the PR plan or is it just the nature of who you are as a company? I think it's both. You know, we, we realize that there is a continuum of, topics or themes for us to talk about because of the way that we work. And there's always a reason for us to talk about an individual project and what the design solutions were for that, whether it's a 10,000 square foot tenant improvement of an office space or an airport or a high containment lab. Um, so the individual project, has its own story that's powerful. And we will always talk about that, but I do think it's much more important for me and for us, and it's more relevant for our audiences to understand that in a much bigger context. And sometimes that's an easy leap to make and sometimes it isn't. Um, you know, we laugh, there are guidelines, I don't know if you know, there's a, a podcast 99% Invisible, which, focuses on kind of really interesting aspects of the built environment. And as a PR person, if you look at their 
story guidelines, if you're pitching them, one of the things that they call out is what they don't want is what they actually refer to as dude with a project. So it's, I have this really cool office building and here it is and here are my pretty pictures and that's dude with a project. Um, and there is a certain amount of, I think, the legacy of PR for the design industry that is a lot of dude with a project. <laughs> that you, if you scratch the surface, there's not much more there than the aesthetics. And there's always a place for that. But I think we all know that design has such great impact on our, our lives, our cities, our environments, that we owe it to ourselves and to also help educate the greater public to understand how to scratch below the surface of design. And so I think the neurodiversity content is a great example of how we can do that. We can reference certain projects, but it's also about the much bigger picture. The thing that I would encourage people to look at within their organizations, large or small, is who are your, your voices? Your, I, I struggle with the expression thought leadership, but who are, for lack of a better phrase right now, your thought leaders? Uh, and, and look beyond the people who have the highest titles. And sometimes it's the junior designers, the emerging leaders who will come to you with this amazing idea or even a totally different perspective on something. And I think by cultivating them, it creates a whole new world of opportunities for us as communicators. But it also is part of this, this ability to dive deep, to not just be going back to that dude with the project. It's what are the ideas and how is design transforming and how can we be the agents for that change and bring everyone, bring everyone along. You never know who's gonna have the right or best or next idea. So be expansive in, in your thinking and open up all the opportunities to the tree can. I think our industry is is such a champion of that as well. I mean, having worked in in fashion and, and other sectors, coming to design, it feels so much more friendly and everyone wants to actually help each other in whatever way that we can. And I think that's just, that's the way that we change the world. I mean, mm -hmm. without wanting to sound all airy-fairy, but design is a way of, of coming up with a solution to a problem effectively. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's all about. And I think it's lovely to see people like Kay Sargent doing mm -hmm. such great work and going out of her way to um, go on podcasts and put posts mm -hmm. out there and do research that, you know, isn't necessarily part of her her job as, mm -hmm. as a designer. It's, it's more, no, this is who I am and this is who mm -hmm. we are. And we want to make a difference here and make an impact. I think also, if you look at particularly within the workplace context, you know, we spend the majority of our lives um, in bed and at work mm -hmm. and so those are two things that are really important to get right mm -hmm. in terms of if you don't feel comfortable in your your office and you don't like spending time there then that's not going to have any positive impacts on you yeah. and your mental health and I think mm -hmm. from a neurodiversity point of view that the more you can do to make it welcoming and inclusive mm -hmm. um, to as many people as possible the better um, and that's not yeah. just going to help you as a company hiring this architecture mm -hmm. firm it's also going to help this just, just the general happiness mm -hmm. of people <laughs> you know and the happier you are or the more comfortable you are the more productive you'll be the better more creative ideas you will have whether you're 
sitting in an office for a tech company, or if you're working in a lab trying to develop the next vaccine for the next pandemic. Absolutely. I think every kind of project will have its own design challenges and it's not just a uniform. This is how you make a something neurodiverse. You know, everything has to be Absolutely considered not. from scratch, right? Um, moving on, changing mm-hmm. the subject ever so slightly, sure. kind of going back to your career and mm-hmm. your journey and PR and how it's changed. Is PR quite a different beast now to where it was when you first started out in 1998? Or, you know, what's what's that journey been like? Yeah. Yes and no, kind of remarkable change and on some level, not at all. The not at all change is that at its heart, I do think it is still about cultivating relationships and telling stories. And those are the, to me, the primary areas that we need to focus on and we need to value. And I have relationships with writers and journalists that have spanned that entire 20 plus years. Some still at the same outlet where we met all those years ago, most not. (laughs) Um, But I think valuing those relationships is the key to success in our industry, because I would hope that if you went out and spoke to some of those editors and journalists about me and how we've engaged, they would say, she doesn't blow smoke. She doesn't come to us with stuff that she knows is weak, that is just overtly self-promotional. She understands how we work and what an editor needs or what a journalist needs. And that's the priority. Um, Even if it means that you don't hear from me very often, hopefully it's all right. When she comes to us, it's with something good. And that's something that I really try and encourage my team and junior people with whom I've worked to understand and to value. But other than that, a whole slew of stuff has changed. (laughs) I can't tell you how happy I am that I don't have to cold call the New York Times real estate editor (laughs) like I did in the beginning of my career, you know, with your hands sweaty on the receiver waiting for him to pick up in the newsroom of the New York Times. And then it was go. You had 15 seconds to keep him from hanging up on you. Yeah. I I don't miss that. Um, (laughs) But it is amazing to think about the number of media outlets and titles that no longer exist from the trade side. I mean, even in the past year, Contract Magazine here in the US closed. We've had titles that have stopped their print production and gone online, which does not mean we have an unending capacity to have stories placed there because they've also cut their editorial staffs and there are fewer people to write the stories. And on the, you know, the shelter side, if you think about 20 years ago, if you went to a newsstand, the shelter section included Metropolitan Home and a kajillion issues of Vogue Living and, and all of these things. So it's made for much fiercer competition to get in the pages, whether it's a consumer or a travel or lifestyle or legacy design media outlet. It's made the competition much fiercer. And journalists have shifted also. There are plenty of people who are freelance who used to be on a masthead. And there are lots of people who have gone from being journalists to coming over to my side of the world. We've seen shifts 
kind of over even over the last year or two, people who've gone in-house at whether it's architecture and design firms, furniture, product design firms, and that's, a, again, this huge shift. So while we continue to push and pitch, and third-party media placement is still the gold standard, I kind of beat this drum to all of my colleagues and say, we need to think of ourselves as a media company as much as we do a design company. And so that's been this huge transition that we focus on owned content just as much as we do on earned content. We've spoken previously about that mm-hmm. shift in terms of it's no longer pitching articles to magazines because it's quite possible for a company to have more followers on on LinkedIn mm-hmm. or more newsletter subscribers than, than perhaps a, a very well-known um, mm-hmm. magazine within the sector. And, you know, when you're in charge of putting that content out, um, what's that like in terms of a challenge as a challenge as a company because you obviously want to be promoting your own work and everything that you're doing not necessarily your competitors but perhaps actually might be beneficial to talk about if a competitor had done something in terms of neurodiversity that you want to champion Mm. and say look you know this is really positive work I think what's that like in terms of a challenge for you as a PR person? Well when we start to work with a particular idea, whether it's a project and we tease themes out of it, or someone comes to us and says, here's this topic like neurodiversity. One of the important things for us to begin to think about is how we tease it out strategically and where do we go? So what is potentially a pitch and where would that go? And is it a trend? And I am absolutely happy if I'm reaching out to an editor at the Wall Street Journal or interior design or anywhere in between to not only talk about what we do, because I also understand kind of enlightened self-interest. If I position something as a pitch and I give you, here's the idea, here's some great thought leaders, here's a project and that's H-OK. But I also say, and here is this person, whether it's at another institution, which could be a client, or a connection that we have, or another design firm, I'm making that reporter or editor's job much easier. And I'm also bolstering the credibility of the idea. So it's not just us, we're seeing it in the broader context. So here is, if it's one of our competitors, I can allude to it, I'm, you know, only go so far, um, but I'm happy to do that. But then at the same time, we also think about, all right, that's a particular angle for that pitch. What else is there? This is a robust topic. What could be an article that lives on hok.com? What are the visual aspects of this that we could shape into a video for YouTube? Is it short enough for social media? Do we have to then create kind of a, a teaser version of that for social? And then working with our colleagues, is this something that you all should think about as a presentation for a conference. So, and then it can even spiral from there. So it's teasing out all of those things. Talking of social media, obviously that's something that um, has grown over your career to being mm-hmm. now a really huge part of any marketing for any company. Um, where do you see social media it, within your role, within our sector? Mm-hmm. What do you think, it, what role does it play? and? How do you think that's going to change? It plays a huge role across kind of multiple 
areas in which we work, both client-facing, establishing our brand, brand recognition, building new client relationships, building our, um, our individual leaders, but also speaking to our community, whether there are current staff, people who are in our kind of HOK world, former staff, all of those folks, it's a real tool to speak with them as well. And it's hugely important for us. We prioritize it as LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and YouTube. YouTube's also probably in the, the top two or three. There's so many other platforms. We just have to focus. And so we are you know, always looking and thinking and trying to understand where our audiences are but we are also a relatively small team and we really thought it would be more important to develop critical mass in places that were important. So with that focus on LinkedIn over the past several years, we've grown that audience to over 220,000 followers, which for an organization of our size, I think is substantial. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. And so that is a place where we think very strategically about the content that we develop that is published by us as the corporate account, and also how to really try and engage as many of our senior leaders and emerging leaders to also develop their brands there and their voices and how they can leverage the content that we create and share it and build their own networks and how we can then also amplify their individual stories and their ideas and their networks. So we try and have it be as reciprocal as possible and also work with our, our colleagues and clients for Women's History Month, for example, just which was last month here in, in the US. We have a project that we're doing with Emory University, this amazing uh, science facility. And both on our side and the contractor side, they're majority women running these teams, whether it's from the structural engineering, sustainability, lab design, uh, side on for HOK and then for J.E. Dunn, our collaborator, they have all of their senior uh, construction project team are women. And so we realized that and just had a quick conversation and said, how can we amplify one another's messages and support each other around this theme for this month? But then it's an opportunity for our two teams to connect. The project is in construction. So we have another year or two probably until it's done but how can we support each other and amplify one another's messages and benefit from each other's following on LinkedIn specifically? And then as part of a broader communications plan for that, that project. But it's, it's, it's the most important platform for us aside from earned media. And then the other side, the internal communication, I think it's been so much more important over this past year, both because of the pandemic and the social unrest that we experienced. People looked to social media as their primary form of communication with us as their employer. We do have an internal, we have an intranet where we do post all kinds of information, but especially for a certain generation or two, before they go to the intranet, they're gonna go to our Instagram page or our LinkedIn so it's been hugely important to have messaging there that supports our values as a brand and communicates that to that audience as well as our clients. But 
we can really only do that via social media. I think it's interesting that you're you you're talking very much about social media being it's not a sales tool. You're not using it to win new business. You're using it to champion. It's a brand piece for you. You know, mm-hmm. champion your values as a company. And and mm-hmm. um, I just think that's interesting because a lot of companies look at it in a very different way um and and try and look at okay well who can we connect with on linkedin that could win us a new project or something whereas i think it's really powerful when you just use it to not just push out sales content but push mm-hmm. out messaging that's you know this is who we are this is who we believe in and that obviously has delivered a huge growth in mm-hmm. following for you which is fantastic is that something you've learned um throughout the process or something you made a conscious decision of mm-hmm. when you started out with the social media accounts? We try and learn from what we do, the success of of our posts. Mm. And we do look at metrics, but we don't sell widgets and we're not a consumer product company. So I do feel like there is this place that we wanna see what resonates. We wanna see what is having an impact and, and seen as valuable by our audiences. So we do look at that and try and learn from it. But it's a little bit of a push me, pull you decision that, you know, maybe not so much on LinkedIn, but on Instagram, for example, continuously, the most successful posts are the beautiful image shots, the kind of heroic architectural photo or renderings. And that's wonderful. And so you give the people what they want, but I will continue to push because one of the things that we think is really important is to highlight the faces and the voices behind HOK. Because a challenge to a global brand like ours is it can feel a little anonymous and it's three letters and people like people forget that there were an H and O and a K, a Helmuth Obata and a Kassebaum. But they are also no longer with the practice. And so we really want to show all the myriad people who create this amazing organization. Those posts often have lower levels of engagement, but tough nuts, we keep doing them because that's important. It's important both to show the people that do engage, but also the impact it has internally when we reach out to people and say, as to a staff person, We want to hear from you. We want to highlight your role and your contribution on our social. So many people are so proud that we're asking. They feel seen in a way that's really important. And so that's always going to trump however many hundreds of likes it gets. I think it brings more value as well. You know, you might get, you know, a lower percentage of engagement, but the value of those people that have engaged in a post that's a longer form and not just a pretty mm-hmm. picture, you know, the, the value behind that is much higher because those people mm-hmm. have taken the time to read it and learn about it and they're more invested in the business. And I think mm-hmm. that's, um, yeah, it's interesting, particularly. I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about mm-hmm. was, staff and your Mm. engagement of staff using social media um obviously we've just we're kind of coming out now but we're still technically in the middle of a huge pandemic is has has social media has has comms changed for you at all over the last year has it been a challenge or have you found it quite easy to adapt um working from home and all that sort of thing In many ways, it's been easy to adapt. My team has always been remote from each other, that we are 
in four or five different cities across across all of our 23 offices. Um, what's been hard is for me to not be together with them periodically. As a group, we would get together once a year. Uh, and we all say that we are so happy we met in LA in early February of 2020. So we had that opportunity to spend two or three days together right before we went into lockdown. And so the, the kind of halo or the residual effect of that happily lasted a while. But what I do really miss is being in the studio with my team members, because I would travel, I was in every one of our offices, major offices, at least once a year. I was in the offices where my teammates are located more than that. I have a new staff member who joined our team about two and a half months ago, whom I've never met in person. I've only met him online, which is so weird. I find that fascinating because obviously my work with the virtual interiors event that started in December and is still going on now, I have daily conversations mm -hmm. with Beth and Sally who run that. And mm -hmm. I've still never met either of them in yeah. person. And it's just such a, it's a really mm -hmm. interesting thing. You can know so, someone so well, but something like height, for example, we had a conversation once about, you have no concept of how tall someone is when all you mm -hmm. see on the screen and you think I don't know if you're six foot or five foot right. one not that it matters but it's just something right. that it's interesting how your opinion of someone can be different to reality when you mm -hmm. miss that face-to-face -face interaction and so in in some ways it's no different because I've always worked with people all across the firm so I would be on calls with colleagues in Hong Kong not go see them too regularly and engage with people and my, I think it's the same for my team. So one of my writers who's based in St. Louis, if he's working on an article with someone in LA or in Toronto, that always would have happened virtually. What I do miss and what I think is a challenge is not having the physical proximity because of that ability to create casual conversation where we really get to know each other and I have learned so much about my colleagues, but also learned about ideas or content that's relevant for what we do, being at dinner with them or being in a taxi on the way to do a site visit for a project. Just those interstitial moments where you can have these more informal conversations, get to know someone, and that is something I, I know we miss, I know we all value, and we've had many, many conversations about how this has impacted our designers. And we've been able to be enormously productive and our design teams have worked across time zones, across offices. We've done that for 25 or more years probably. So on one level, it hasn't been a problem, but then there isn't for them that ability to all be brainstorming around a shared set of plans to be drawing over each other. You can do that digitally, but you're also not hearing your partner in charge on the phone with the client and learning subtly in those nuanced ways how to communicate with a client, how to lead a team, how to mentor someone. Um, and so the designers have articulated that. And I think as communicators, we. We have some of those challenges as well, but it also has meant that so many more people are available and accessible to me. Mm -hmm. My CEO hasn't been on a plane 
in 15 months. Bill calls me at the drop of a hat. If I need Bill, I can schedule time with Bill in a way that is inconceivable a year ago. Yeah. And the same with all of our other leaders that so much of the challenge was just getting them when they weren't in an airplane or in client meetings and traveling to it. So I think there's been an ability for internal communication that we didn't have before that's already changing. You know, one of my leaders of the sports practice that's in the Midwest said he's already back to traveling 40% of the time, Gosh. which I think shocked a bunch of people on that call. Yeah. How do you think this um, change in ways of working is going to impact our industry? Because you talk about flying a lot and obviously it's, it's needed sometimes for business, but I think this pandemic has also allowed us to focus on things like global warming and offsetting mm-hmm. the carbon attached to um, mm-hmm. flights and that sort of thing. Do you think this is sort of, press the reset button and now people like your CEO are going to think actually do I really need to fly I can I do this over zoom do you think it's going to change the way we work fundamentally within the design world I do I think there's always the need for in-person engagement Mm -hmm. especially when it's in the very beginning if it's pitching a new project or developing a client rapport nothing replaces being together and being able to really read one another's expressions, their body language, to the extent that it's possible in those scenarios, then going to lunch or having a coffee and having all of those opportunities to build rapport. The other side of it is absolutely, it's made clear to clients that there are many things that can be achieved in this platform that saves money, that saves time, that saves the planet to a certain degree. And even on a call with one of our other sport leaders, he was in the process of negotiating a final contract for a new project. And he said, we've looked very carefully at the project schedule and here are the two or three times we think we absolutely need to be together in person. And for these other times, we think there's no reason that we can't do this on Zoom and this is, or whatever the platform is, and this is why. And the client really appreciated that we had given them that thought and that insight, and they had the ability to push back one way or the other. But I think it's an opportunity for the designers to take a little bit of that control back and and to be the people who say, this is when it's of the most value, and otherwise let's use all of the tools that we've all learned how to master over this time I think on a communication side, much of that still applies to us as well. But as soon as I can go back to traveling, I would like to because I need to know the people with whom I collaborate. And I think that's the biggest challenge for us is to to continue to find the ways to build the relationships internally and externally it was always challenging to get a journalist or an editor to meet. You know, they don't lunch is a thing of the past. And maybe in the beginning of my career, I could say to an editor, let's meet for a lunch. Uh, that almost never happens anymore. But I do still think it's hugely valuable to be at events, whether it's a conference or a trade show or a smaller social event where you can get to know people as people and then be able to build on that. Um, So I do think that the Venice Biennales and the Salones and things like that 
will come back because we also miss each other and we want to be together. We are such a social industry as well, aren't we? You know, it's all about events and meeting people and having fun as well. You know, work hard, play hard is such an important thing mental health wise. I think we're all kind of itching and ready to go when things can go sort of back to normal. Um, Very quickly, because I know we are starting to run out of time. I wanted to go first of all and say, what can we look forward to from HOK over the coming year? What can you tell us? Ah. that you're allowed to say <laughs> any exciting projects any, any research yeah. that's happening one of the challenges I think across the spectrum it doesn't have to even be at a firm as large as ours in the design industry it's safe to say at any given point 75 percent of what we're doing no one can talk about <laughs> so Absolutely. that's I'm just laughing is what can I talk to you about you know, we have this huge project that we're doing in the UK that you will hear about shortly because the prime minister is going to make a visit. That's all I can say right now. That's incredibly um, exciting. I know, I know. And it has a code. We have projects that have code names. Don't you love that? I love that. High security. Super high security. <laughs> uh, so yes, we're doing a master plan for a huge entertainment industry client that I probably will never be able to talk to you about. We're doing hugely influential healthcare work in Asia that I will never be able to talk to you about. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of things that I should be mentioning that I, I just can't think of off the top of my head. But you know, I think what we're looking at is a much more optimistic focus on rebuilding and renewing. I think we're seeing across the continuum, even though we have many, many obstacles and struggles across the globe, we understand that. But I think there is a, a focus on what is possible, what the design world can do to contribute to solving these huge problems, whether it's designing research and development facilities and high containment labs, where these companies can develop vaccines in an insanely short period of time to net zero carbon neutral opportunities that reduce the impact of the built environment on, on the climate crisis to, to mitigate the climate crisis and to be part of the solution and to create environments that support equity. Because I think it's all of those things. It's recovering or coming out of the pandemic and it's focusing all of that energy on addressing the other huge issues, which are the climate crisis and the massive inequity across all of our societies. And the designers and people who work in the built environment have a direct and material opportunity to make positive change in all those areas. I love that. You could tell that's why you're a PR person. <laughs> the perfect PR line. I love it. But it is so true, though. I think it is such a good time to rebuild, renew, you mm -hmm. know, as I mentioned earlier, press the reset button almost and mm -hmm. look at things afresh. And I think our industry particularly has um, real power in the ability yes. to do that. Um, OK, quick fire last question. What's your favourite HOK project and why? Oh, this one might be controversial, but that's probably why I'll choose it. Is it one the... you can't talk about? <laughs> no, I can talk about this one. Yay! 
LaGuardia Airport, the new Terminal B. Uh, and I can hear the groans out in your audience for anyone who had ever had to travel through the old LaGuardia Terminal B. <laughs> and I mean, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, partly, I think it is this great illustration of one of the core strengths of us as, a, as an organization. So we are bringing structural engineering, architecture, expertise in aviation and transportation, interior design, sustainability, just an expertise in technical projects that are so technically and programmatically complex that there are very few firms around the world that could even tackle it as a project. And it is improving the lives of literally tens of thousands of people who travel through there a year. It was so terrible and all those comments that you know, now President Biden made about it and the comments that I would have made about it myself, even as a New Yorker, so it's in that way, it's really self-serving. So it's not quite done. We've got another year till it's all officially done, but it is all of those things. And it also manages to include some poetry. You know, there are these amazing structural bridges that span over 400 feet long, that there are two of them that span over what will be an active taxiway. So you'll be able to go check in, check a bag, get your boarding pass if you physically need one. And then you walk over these bridges to go to where the gates are and you'll be able to watch planes move underneath you and look over and see them take off. And it's just part of this poetic metaphor about New York as being a city of islands and bridges and having that as part of the design, I think is, is wonderfully poetic as much as it is technically sophisticated and sustainable and kind of utterly night and day from what it was before. Stephanie Miller, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm uh, looking forward to seeing all of these confidential projects <laughs> come out <laughs> over the next year. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. See you soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Design Business Podcast. I'm Alexander Barnes-Ross and that was Stephanie Miller from HOK. Just wanted to say a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, Backman. If you haven't already, go and check out their next generation office. Don't forget to subscribe. Let us know what you think on social media and we will see you next week when we'll be talking to Beth Harrison and Sally Rice from the Virtual Interiors event.